0: That's
1: Welcome to the Space Cave I'm David Hunsberger A big warg to all of you Uh, Reminder, I've got some stand-up shows coming up In late July through September Check out davidhunsberger.com for all the dates See if I'm coming to your city And get some tickets Okay, let's do something we haven't done in a while And check in with a citizen of planet
2: Earth Hello Dave
1: Hey Dan, how's it sounding on your end? Pretty good How about me? Yeah, I think it sounds good on this end as well. We're succeeding with Skype. All right, way to go. Yeah, it's been a How while. How are you? Good, nice to hear your voice. Thank you. Same to you. Thanks. I, I heard the first are little... Are you recording? Uh, I am recording. the The I feel like there are a couple little dropouts, perhaps, as, as for whatever reason sometimes happens here. I don't know why. Um, maybe my internet's not the greatest. Are you hear, hearing me okay, though? No, I'm hearing you well. Okay, good. I can hear you pretty well also. So I guess let's proceed. I'd love to hear all about Japan and uh, recent happenings and what's new with you.
2: Well, it's all so exciting. Um, on the personal front, uh, my wife and I bought a new home a few weeks ago. Hey, congratulations. It's, thank you very much. It's in a village about 15 kilometers out of the city that we live in. So we already had a block of land in that village and we were thinking about building, but we didn't really want to do it because we're not really. It just really didn't seem like our thing, you know. Hey, you plumber, plumb that. What are you guys doing? Come on. You yeah, know, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> you, it wasn't really our sort of thing. And you couldn't, can't really trust everyone to just do the right thing, right? You know, I mean, they may do, uh, but you shouldn't trust them <laughs> to do <laughs> we were looking at different houses, and um, long story short, this one came up, and we jumped at it. And and um, but it needed some renovation before we moved in. So we before we went to Japan, we were madly getting it all. Um, Up to snuff and uh, then we had to stop to go to Japan and since we came back we've been um, covered in paint head to toe. We've been trying to get the place in shape before, you know, this house, the old homestead needs to be vacated because it's sold. So that's all exciting and very tiring. That is exciting. But Japan was interesting.
1: Well, first I want to talk about how you guys both decided that you couldn't boss someone around to build you a house. Did you, how'd you come to that revelation to be like, you know, I can't see myself saying, hey, those bricks go over there. Did you practice? Did you role play a little bit? <laughs>
2: well, I'll tell you what, we thought about it a long time. because I think we've had this block of land for since 2013, 14. And we've been dancing around this build for a long time. And uh, there was a lot, of, there was a lot of factors. Um, we could easily break the glass ceiling in the, in the village. Mm-hmm. Um, with by overcapitalizing, I mean this is enthralling. <laughs> Spaceburgers are going to be again to be writing to you in their droves to say more Dan, more Dan. <laughs> uh, we could only build within a very set budget because otherwise we were overcapitalizing and if we had uh, some bad luck or bad health or bad anything, we would then have to try and sell a property that was for fifty thousand dollars more than anything. Like that had been sold before in the village. It wasn't our personal budget. Like what the banks would lend us was a problem that we had a glass ceiling that we were tapping our head on. So here, so that, so that was so yeah. You were going to say something.
1: Yeah, here the glass ceiling more so refers to um, the wage disparity between men and women, and women are sort of trapped under this glass ceiling. So when you guys are referencing a glass ceiling, you, you I think it maybe has a different uh, context.
2: Well, you know that's a that's a sort of a more nefarious glass ceiling. This one is just a glass ceiling that doesn't bother bother you too much. It's just something you want to be aware of. <laughs> that if you're going to spend five hundred thousand dollars in a in a for a house that's only technically technically worth four hundred thousand, that's going to be a dopey move. Yeah, but but maybe you're different. Maybe you think no. <laughs> I'd
1: love to I'd, I would do what you guys did and renovate because you're painting, you're doing a lot of work yourselves. I assume you're still having to boss people around a little bit when they're they're also helping you.
2: Oh yeah we've had some we've had some trades through um, but we're pretty much finished with that now we just need a new air conditioning heating uh, system. We just got to uh, say you know yeah, we'll be home on those days and um, and they'll have to do it. <laughs> so there's not not too much bossing because I don't know, I don't know from that too much. So it's all exciting. So we're moving out town. It's going to be a lot quieter, which is what what we like.
1: Yeah, I mean, you love animals so much. You're you're moving, you're and you briefly mentioned, <clears throat> you maybe use the term as just sort of a general term. But you said move away from the homestead. I don't assume that you guys are living off the grid and like here. The concept of homesteading is. You're you're doing everything yourself. You are off the, the the, the sort of grid component. You're not getting municipal power or sewage removal or anything like that. You're but it. It seems like you guys are still kind of tied to the city. In yeah,
2: some way. no, we're we're still still on the services and utilities and all that sort of thing. But that's probably our next move if we. If we do it, to go off the grid. Cool. You know, let's just take one step, one step at a time. <laughs> We're not even in this. Supposed to move in next week, so let's see how all that goes.
1: You're finding time to do the um, compiling, I would call it, the cobbling together of each and every Space Cave episode, mm. and then on top of that, you're working a full-time job, moving, and finding time to travel to Japan. I don't think people appreciate how much effort you specifically put into this show and uh and make it look like a breeze
2: well you just got to compartmentalize you probably know this uh, when you've had your busy times or anyone that you know com- compartmentalize things and yeah just take breaks when you can and make the breaks count but they're not quite as long as what i what i'd like like i had a paintbrush in my hand at five twenty-four this morning <laughs> uh, I think that's a little too early. <laughs> <laughs> you're a, uh,
1: you're an ambitious guy. I, I feel, I mean, my thing I'm running into, and I don't know if it has to do with my recent um, health issues, but I don't, I just run out of energy very quickly. I can't tell if it's just I'm getting older or uh, if it's some new thing or what, you don't seem to struggle with that.
2: Well, now I do, I don't have as much energy as I did in the 90s. I'm still tired from the 90s, <laughs> <laughs> even though it was a long time, time ago but I mean that's when I did my main rocking and rolling but I, you're definitely getting older I can confirm that <laughs> <laughs> but I mean it's hard to get good sleep when you get old you know let's just talk about it like a couple of old Jewish guys Um <laughs> You know, it's hard to get a good sleep. If I can get a four-hour run a night, you know, if I can get a couple of twos and a four, I mean, that's an amazing (laughs) sleep for me. I don't know about you.
1: (laughs) I sleep great. I still, a night where I have to get up and use the bathroom, I'm just embarrassed. I feel, yeah, like an old guy. I just feel ridiculous. Like, who am I, an 80-year-old man? Uh, But mostly, I sleep okay. But yeah, I guess tied to this lack of energy has been abnormally waking up at 4:30 this is riveting by the way i'm glad i brought us to this
2: yeah uh, it is. this <laughs> one need editing it's all goes in
1: <laughs> nothing gets edited out dan you know that uh but th- this is really pushing the bounds maybe we mm. should uh well let's 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 um put a a pin here and take the rest of this this enticing Chat and it is it. I it gets better from here. I think we even though we're living in the present, we both know that we have got to hear about your Japan trip. So
2: let's hear. I've got so much Buddha talk.
1: Oh yeah. Well, let's go hear about that. Nice chatting with Dan. And uh, if you want to hear more of that, and especially if you're thinking of visiting Japan uh, sometime soon, the whole episode is just a real nice idea of various ways to travel through Japan. Or if you think you're never going to make it there. You can hear a lot about it and go on a virtual trip uh, through Dan's narration. It's uh, it's it's great. It's like it was like being there. So nice catching up with him. We've never met in person. We only uh, communicate through email and the I don't know once a year maybe more maybe less of a of a Skype chat, and yet feels like we're old pals. And uh, if you contribute to the Patreon, eventually if we get enough patrons, we'll be able to help out Dan and contribute uh, to his funds in life for all the time and effort he puts in to editing and, and putting this show together. So anyway, let's get to some hardcore chatting. I'm excited about this for... Well, I already did it. This has already happened, but I'm excited for you to listen to it because an old favorite of the show. I think now is the leading, uh, been on the the show the most. I haven't kept like a running tally of that, but I believe this is her third appearance. She came solo first with her turtle Petunia, and then she came with um, Corey Clatterbuck, and they talked about um, um, marine birds. And now she brought her, she said, hey, I'm teaching. What if I brought up uh, a friend of mine? My friend uh, Davi Kasev almost messed it up. And we'll, we'll chat. And, and I just feel like this is so worthwhile and necessary to hear what goes in to becoming a teacher and how, how enthusiastic people are getting there. And we talk about that a little bit in the show, but sometimes you feel like people just settle into jobs because it was available. And it's nice to hear like people, you know, ambitiously pursue those careers and care so much and want to educate and um, inform the next group and i think they're wonderful at that you'll hear it all about it and uh here we go this is sheila madrack doc mad to those of you in the know and davi Kasev. enjoy
3: No, i think like a tattoo on the face is the same as like a tattoo on the shoulder was when we were younger
1: you could have a... You should get a shark on your face. <laughs> it's ne- It's never sharks, though. It's always like some sort of writing, yeah. a little yeah. symbol. But you could... Yeah, I think nowadays you could see it on a bank teller. You could for yeah. sure get yeah. a neck tattoo like, near the totally. ear and no one would think twice yeah. about it.
3: I mean, if you don't have a tattoo on your thigh, then you're weird. It's like, yeah. why don't you have a right. tattoo on your thigh? Especially yeah, where you I live. Yeah.
1: Yeah. San Diego, even when I lived there... 15 years ago was heavily tattooed so I don't imagine that's gotten more
4: I'm in North Park though so it's like hipster central so like Ah. there's every
1: walk of life <laughs>
4: lots of mustaches
1: i'm gonna push this a little closer okay. too. yeah um good to have you back yes thank you and nice to meet you dobby
3: yeah thanks for having me
1: sure you guys made the drive up i appreciate that and we're drinking some or at least sheila and i mm-hmm. doc Matt and i are drinking some <laughs> hoppy pride pilsner yep. from vermont because it is pride Month. yeah and um like- are you much of a pilsner fan
4: I am I mean, I'm just a beer fan, so I've never really met too many beers I don't like. <laughs> okay. I've been on an IPA kick of late, but I don't know. That seems like that's just very North Park
3: San Diego of me to say. I kind of feel like I need to point out I'm not drinking Happy Pride because I'm not drinking beer, not right. because I don't want that beer.
4: Right, right. <laughs> Davi brought a ginger beer.
1: You had surgery surgery recently. Is that a part of it, or just don't drink? No, I generally? just don't drink oh, generally. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, thanks for um, joining in anyway, making the the trek mm-hmm. up to share. I feel like you did the show the first time just solo, mm-hmm. and then uh, after that, you've been really great about like, hey, I how about this person?
4: They're all my, and they're both my lab mates too from our PhDs. So Corey last time, who is, I guess. Cl- close to finishing cool maybe within the year I'm putting pressure on her now (laughs) she listens to this (laughs) she's getting married this summer and I think she'll finish next year I don't know Uh, she'll finish when she's ready that's that's our advisor what do I say (laughs) (laughs) Davi and I walked together but we finished a few months apart
1: yeah. Oh, okay. You do walk. You walk for a PhD program. We did. Well, you kind of you,
4: <laughs> you, 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 you
3: sit on stage yeah, when other people stage. walk really awkwardly for a long time, oh. and then at the end they kind of just say like, "Now everyone who got a PhD stand," and then everyone mm-hmm. looks at you and you are like, "Yeah, we were weird before. We're like more weird now."
4: They had. We came like and shook someone's hand. They made us like you stand up and
3: you <laughs> walk to the they front of the stage. Us. Yeah, right.
4: yeah, because it's in like it was in the huge basketball arena and it was like all the undergrads there for their thing and then we're sitting on stage (laughs) in our like silly tams the hat that you wear oh
3: yeah but but i I will say that like we got to use the basketball like locker rooms (laughs) to get ready because you have to put on it's like a robe and a hood and all these other things it's not easy um and i was really impressed that san diego state they had two urinals in the men's basketball locker room one of which was uh, one of the like, mini urinals to be ADA compliant hey, nice. um, I don't think there's anyone on the team sure. shorter than six foot two but <laughs> their urinals are ready just in case Like, if we were pretty excited back. about that though
4: because we had because we were sitting on stage we had to come in from like the locker room area and being Aztec basketball fans we're like taking selfies by their <laughs> lockers like this is awesome
1: cool. they, yeah they've been in a good run recently they're, they're in yeah. the tournament fairly frequently
3: they so make it I mean, enough. we we just had Kawhi Leonard win the championship. That's true. So that's like, yeah, I feel, I feel like a little bit of pride because yeah. even though we have no ownership over that whatsoever, we saw him on campus. So
4: <laughs> yeah, we did. I, I took a photo of him once on campus. Like it's Kawhi Leonard, he's gonna be big one day.
1: Good eye. You should be a scout. Mm-hmm. That's pretty impressive. I've often said that about
4: myself. <laughs> no, he was just so... He was... I mean, San Diego State, my first year, was not very good. And then it was the following year that they were, like, all of a sudden off the charts because of And we thank you for that, yeah. yeah like it was, it was a lot of my scouting. scouting. Yeah, yeah, so. But don't you remember that? Because you could yeah. go, like... We could go get tickets so easy day of, and then the next year, people were selling their free student tickets online. Oh, yeah, I mean, like when I started,
3: they the coach used to walk around handing tickets out on campus to try to <laughs> get people to come, come to games.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's uh, a sad thought. <laughs> just putting on his blazer. And, right, exactly. All right, I'd take the job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, geez, anyone yeah. want to come watch us? Right. we got a whole auditorium. Yeah. Right. an arena, right. really. Yeah, you guys took advantage of the uh like i guess undergrad and graduate feeling of being a student like being on campus to you Mm -hmm. know the the
3: camaraderie the i
4: feel like our department was pretty good about doing stuff like that don't you think i mean i think people in our department
3: yeah i mean i think that when you're a grad student anything that brings you out of your kind of hole of hiding Mm -hmm. and studying and doing research and feeling very trapped yeah. is good. So if you can get a bunch of people together and say, we're all going to do this together, no one feels guilty, all right, let's go. Yeah, That's always helpful.
1: Is it the, the department that does it? Or you know how like you every know, class that comes to it? Through, do you yes. have a, a, a leader within the group that's like, so-and-so was instrumental I feel like you were
4: a leader. I was th- technically the party captain in our lab. That was my title. <laughs> I think Colin
3: Jones. Oh, Colin Jones, I'm giving oh, Colin the credit. Jones yeah. was.
4: Yeah, he was pretty. Yeah.
3: So hopefully he's Colin, listening yeah. to this. He, he's an Oregon State fan, so I'm not supposed to mention that he's also an Aztec oh, yeah. fan. But Secret. I think he really rallied the troops. So That's he true. got us out. He got us out of the lab, which is not easy to do.
1: Yeah. No, I, I I never think about that, and I I I don't know what it is thinking of like the science kids of just having a college life that's kind of like oh yeah I might agree and now I'm going to work and look looked like everyone else was having a lot of fun right, but exactly. some people
4: like- though I think it depends I don't know our program was pretty good about extracurriculars but I think I know I know other people that went to grad school and it was like this is my job I come here to do work and school is my work and mm-hmm. we weren't like that though good I definitely <laughs> wasn't
1: <laughs> I think it adds such a cool thing to the concept of what a scientist is like that's mm-hmm. why it's great always having you back because everyone that does this show is always very pleasant personal and i like the um, anyone listening to me, like i think by now 100 or 200 whatever episodes in yeah you like okay i get it scientists are pretty normal
4: yeah, right right. You know,
1: like, <laughs> but to still hear that like the joy the enthusiasm of just being a person and then oh, also yeah. being interested in the specific field
3: yeah right. i mean i think that As opposed to calling scientists normal, I would say we're (laughs) equally abnormal to everyone else. That's (laughs) that's more
1: accurate. (laughs)
4: Yeah, there's definitely, yeah, it runs the gamut. But I think, I don't know, I don't know where, oh, I know what I was going to say. It was just like, we spend so much time in school as students, and now Davi and I both being professors. It's like, we don't, we haven't ever left that bubble, though. I still feel like I'm still kind of living the same life in some ways, it's just now I'm in the front of the room.
1: Yeah, tell me a little bit more about your new job. You just got this, yeah. this new job. and I both Ooh.
4: did. Yeah. Um, so I last summer made the decision to quit my quote unquote day job mm-hmm. doing environmental consulting and focus on teaching full time. I was like, I need to be able to do it full time before I can get a full time job. So I put together like a piecemeal adjunct schedule for fall and spring. And this past spring, I was at three different schools teaching. I figured this out the other day. I think five separate lecture sections and three labs, and driving like over 400 miles in a week. But I knew that this opening was coming up at one of the schools for the class that I teach. And so um, starting fall, I'm assistant professor Madrek. Way to go. Yeah, at San Diego Miramar. I'm really excited. I've been an adjunct there for a little. Or close to three years. And so it's like, I've been saying I got to test drive my new job for three years. And now it's like, this is awesome. I'm so happy to be here all the time.
1: Like when you say that you just put it together, it makes it sound like teaching was always Available that you're like, well, it might require hundreds of hours or hundreds of miles driving. Yeah. But how did you enter into just the initial stage?
4: I had I started teaching adjunct when I was still doing my PhD. So I was January 2015. I think was my first semester as an adjunct um, because I have a master's degree. I could do that, like Davy does not have a master's degree so but in the state of california if you have a master's you can teach um and i think at the four-year schools too depends on which one which one yeah
1: yeah. adjunct just means you're like not fully associated or part of the you're You're not not a full-time faculty and
4: you have a max load that you can take so it's usually like somewhere around 60 percent of what a full-time person teaches so um i had always taught at least a class every semester since that time but it got to a point where I realized when people would say, oh, you have work tonight. I'm like, that's well, teaching. It's not work. am like, oh, wait a minute. I should cue in on that, that it doesn't feel like work, and this is what I should be doing. So, yeah, yeah but pe- like putting the schedule together, it was like I had to have enough load to have enough salary and income. <laughs> so, that's what it was, just kind of scrapping together.
3: I, I kind of feel like it's important to jump in and be like, we are both very lucky that we have landed in full-time jobs. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of universities and colleges rely on adjunct faculty to teach classes, true. but there's not nearly enough permanent positions to accommodate all of these teachers at any point. So a lot of people can spend years and years teaching adjunct, and it's kind of a, a scramble to make ends meet as a result of that. So yeah. we, we're both really fortunate that we've landed in positions now.
4: Yeah, I know. I'm At least I found out for my position, there was like I think fifteen people that they interviewed for the first round out of like a hun- over a hundred applicants that were just kind of in Southern
3: California. Yeah. yeah, I was one of those applicants. That's so not <laughs> not not interviewed though.
4: <laughs> yeah, but we got a, a arguably better ga- No, I'm equal, just kidding. Equal, equal uh, but different. Yeah. yeah, I shouldn't say that. I love I I love Miramar, and I love teaching at the community college level, but. Davi just got a full-time position himself within, what, two
3: weeks of each other.
1: So when you miss out on the position that Sheila ended up getting, that's one (laughs) of ten that you have applications for, or two, or three, or...
3: Oh, I mean, I applied to... I mean, I don't even want to wager a guess. Many, many, many position. You looked Uh, all over the country, though, right? Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. I I applied all over the country. I mean, we were hoping to stay in Southern... I have a wife and son in San Diego, so, Mm -hmm. you know, that was the goal to stay there, but recognizing that the likelihood of finding a position there was really low, you know, I applied more places than my wife was willing to move, that's for sure.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's an odd question. You know, like, uh, if you're... I'm trying to think of like a traveling job, a welder or something. And if you're lucky, they're building a pipeline in your hometown and you've got work mm-hmm. for months or years just working on that. But then if times get tough, you start getting on the phone and get well, I got some work in Texas. They got those pipeline. You have okay. to move the family. And when you get it, you're lucky to be doing the thing that you're good at totally. in the place you're doing it. Does it bug you if you have a student that And does it enter in at all that like teachers are the same way like i worked hard to get in this position to be in front of you it matters to me i want it to matter to you does that factor in at all
3: i mean i feel like most of my students appreciate i mean i think it depends on the instructor and what's going on in your relationship with the students and that's going to vary depending on the semester and on lots of other factors but from my perspective most of the students have appreciated my time at the very least Mm -hmm. but i do think that A lot of people don't realize how much work goes into filling, especially when you look at the adjunct faculty that might need to move more. Some of them are driving between San Diego and LA just to kind of make ends meet and teaching at schools across California. There's a lot of effort that goes into that, and the reason they're doing it is they love teaching. They might be really good at teaching. Mm -hmm. They haven't landed anything more permanent, so you know they they're going out to make it to make it happen. So I think that. If it's not appreciated, it should be, at the very least.
4: I I feel like, um, at least from the feedback I get from my students, there's a lot that goes into showing respect for them that if you are respectful of them as, you know, burgeoning scientists or whatever, you know, when you have non-majors that are going in different directions, that you respect their time and their education, that is reciprocated really well. I think the students that I have that complain about other professors, the ones they complain about are the ones that sort of just come in, they have no patience, they're maybe probably a little jaded, I would say, kind of just, you're a student identification number instead of an individual person Mm kind of thing, and yeah i mean i davi and i i feel like i i've actually have i ever seen you teach i don't I think taught so. you
3: actually in one lecture <laughs> you uh, did? when you were in grad school yeah
4: what class Becca's it was class? yeah
3: it was conservation oh yeah and biology or something oh, my first lines. year I, I made such an impact that she doesn't remember <laughs> I, just, I like that
4: i imagine though that we would have similar teaching styles i feel like
3: i can't i don't know i feel like we would well i think both of us i mean there's Look, when we were in, I'm just going to use my kind of group of students that I went to grad school with, right? Some people got teaching positions as TAs and would complain about, oh, it's such a drain on my day. I have to go teach. Mm-hmm. And some people come out of it saying, I feel so energized because I got to go teach. Yeah. And I think both of us feel like when we're teaching and we're working with students and we get to see how excited they are about our information, it kind of re-engages us in our mm-hmm. own science. So... I yeah, I agree
4: with that. It does it, it does uh,
3: make you excited again,
4: because you're seeing it. It's, I, I'm not a parent. Davi's a parent, and how, Zev is one. He's one, yeah. Yeah, so I would imagine, like, for example, we were just on our drive up. His wife and their baby, Zev, were, are on the East Coast, and they're at an aquarium. And Davi's like, look, they're, they're looking at the sea turtle. Look how excited he looks. And so, like, seeing through Zev's eyes, right? Right,
3: and then Sheila said, I'm driving, stop showing me the phone. <laughs> no, actually, he showed me a sea
4: turtle and I was like, is that a mola mola? Which is a fish. And he's like, sure. <laughs> Um But... I feel like that with my students a little bit, especially the science, the biology majors that like, and the ones that are more research oriented, like we are, that they're so excited and they find this really cool thing that maybe you already knew for years, but they just discovered it and it's really exciting to them. And it does get you excited again and kind of remind you of like what, where
3: you were at that point in your career. And I think that, I mean, stepping away kind of from the adjunct side of it, which was the initial question, but it depends on what school, college, university, at, right? So I remember I was an undergrad at UCLA, and I remember some of the times like I would try to talk to a professor, and they were, they were just out the door trying to get to something. And I remember thinking, their job is to teach me. Why are they running away? Mm-hmm. And it took me a while to realize, no, at research-focused universities, their job is to do research. Some of them are great teachers, some of them are not great teachers, but teaching is a small part of what they do. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas if you're at a teaching focused university, I think you find faculty that are more likely to want to engage with students because that's where they chose to be. Um, Not to say that there aren't amazing professors and teachers at R1 schools, which are the research focused schools that are really great in engaging students too, but I think some students need to realize that their professors have jobs and have other things they need to do. So when they're providing time outside of their kind of standard class or office hours, it's because they are donating time to try to help out. Mm-hmm. I've always found that I will give my students as much time as they need as long as they're respectful. And I try to respect them the same way back. But Maybe this more, is more f- than they want. <laughs>
1: <kidding>. <laughs> From an outsider's perspective, I mean, this is probably outlandish and... Off the mark a little bit, you know, but like universities are businesses, mm-hmm. and so having a good football program and paying the football coach a bunch of money in the end ends up being beneficial to the school, and yet a lot of people would go, something's way off here. Right. Yeah. And then if you have scientists who are playing the game of trying to get published, trying to have their name have a little more esteem attached to it. That's good for you, university, we have so-and-so teaching right. here because they were just nominated for this, or they were invited to speak at this thing, mm-hmm. but then you go, yeah, but my child had their class and didn't get to say a word to them all year. Is there that balance? That is that is, that, is there any negative side to that when they are so heavily involved in research? Oh, totally. I think
4: so. I mean... Davi just wanted to drop that he went to UCLA. (laughs) So I did my undergrad at the University of Vermont. Since we're drinking shipyard (laughs) beer, um, and UVM has gotten bigger, but when I was there was about eight thousand students undergrad, so relatively small, medium, and it is does have a really active research program, but is not a a, like an R one research university although i don't i don't think it is but um the i felt like i had a lot of access to my professors and we were involved in their research when even in a big lecture of like 200 300 students there would be professors like this one um Professor Bern Heinrich, who's a pretty well-known raven and crow researcher of behaviors, and he would talk about his stuff and the things that were going on in his lab and offer, you know, opportunities to come and at least look at what they were doing, and that felt, I think the size of the school has a lot to do with it and the access that you have. Burlington's kind of an isolated little city, too. It's (laughs) like they probably were your neighbors on top of being your professor. Yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that some of my faculty, when I was an undergrad, it was clear that they were happy to interact with students as much as possible, and some weren't. Mm -hmm. And I think as a student, you had to learn how to engage the faculty that were less willing to engage on their own. But it was really on you. The faculty weren't going to kind of make sure you were doing okay. You were one of hundreds of students they dealt with they had research to do. If you didn't show up, they didn't show up. Yeah. But if you were willing to show up and you found the right way to engage them, there are amazing, amazing mentors and professors mm-hmm. at all universities. But I now have been teaching at the University of San Diego, which is, there's faculty there doing great research also, but it's a teaching-focused school. And it really comes across that a lot of those faculty, actually all the faculty that I've met care a lot about student learning. And if their students aren't showing up, they're going to change their approach and re-engage them and do whatever they can to help them so
4: yeah it it depends a lot too i mean everyone talks about class size and that really is i think a factor my larger lectures i don't i could be the end of the semester and i'll know a handful of their names but Mm -hmm. it is the people that were proactive and came up and you know especially the they're this one class i'm thinking of were non-science majors it was like a gen ed science class they had to take but I had a core group that always showed up. I knew all their faces. Like, I know you're my student, but I wouldn't know <laughs> their name necessarily. But with the smaller classes and being at community, which is teaching focused, of course, um, I always know my students within a couple of weeks and know them well and spend hours with them in lecture and lab. And, you know, you feel like you get to... I feel like like I force my mentorship sometimes, but (laughs) most of the time they come up and they'll be a little shy at first, but they they seek you out or you seek them out because you know, hey, you're struggling a little bit and I want you to do well. And um, you have that opportunity to do that. It really just I think there's so many factors involved in how
1: I thought it was good for me learning because not to say it was necessarily life lessons but big auditorium classes and leaving feeling just like one of the many Mm -hmm. and and so and they always show that cartoon in the beginning of classes where anyone have a question and every single kid's thought bubble is like I do and no one raises their hand (laughs) and I felt like that a lot like I don't know any of these kids they're gonna and so there was a class, a dynamics class I took where everyone was like, this guy's the worst. You <laughs> fail everyone in the first test. There's no curve. It's just brutal. And I knew I couldn't retake it. I couldn't stay an extra year in college. I had right. to finish it. Right. So I was kind of like... I'm just going to figure it out. And I, of course did terribly on the first test and everyone dropped it. And then I stayed in just sort of like this gunfighter sort of stare. <laughs> like, still here, man. And, but I, it was up to me to, I started going to his office right. hours. And so yeah. I felt really lucky that he, one, he was around and two started to take kind of a vested interest that mm-hmm. I was showing some initiative. Totally. And that to me was like the most critical mm-hmm. thing I learned in college It was like, I can control a little bit of this. Yeah. Right. Probably. Well, I
3: guess to any Definitely. student who's listening, like office hours are awesome go to them because faculty yeah. don't want to sit and play whatever solitaire or whatever. Is <laughs> what you do
4: in your office hours? <laughs> no, I don't. I, I mean,
3: it's a good question. I sometimes sit and twiddle my thumbs, but I mean, office hours are a huge tool and if students don't take advantage of them, it's really hard for the professors to know what they're missing or what they can do to kind of adapt their teaching plan. Yeah. So if anyone is avoiding office hours because they think they're <laughs> being a pain, don't do that. <laughs>
4: well, I don't, and I think on top of that, it's the and there's an intimidation factor of feeling like I can't approach my professor. I don't know. I don't feel like I have students that are feel intimidated by me. <laughs> Maybe they are. I don't know. Um, but I make a point of that because I think I can speak for both of us that we would not be where we are today without the advisors and mentors that we had probably beginning at undergraduate level mm-hmm. and I know personally I utilized my advisor probably more than she wanted to see me <laughs> and it but did was you have a huge feeling,
1: that did you have a feeling that she was on your
4: side oh like, definitely because I was I went into undergrad as an animal science pre vet med major And didn't really want to be a veterinarian, but grew up in a household of parents that were like, oh, you want to work with animals? That's what you do. You're either a zookeeper or you go (laughs) become a veterinarian. And so, you know, they were footing the bill for school. So I was like, all right, I'll be a vet and thought, you know, I could just kind of tweak it how I wanted it. But my advisor knew that I was way more interested in research and specifically sea turtles even then. And she helped me. She's like, let's keep the animal science pre vet tracked. So you finish, and if you change your mind later on, you've got all the prereqs, but let's tailor your schedule so you can take those natural resources, ecology zoology classes and I mean I she I think really enjoyed that because she was so sick of talking to people that were just going to vet school yeah. I actually ta- I talked to her recently she's at Michigan is the head of their animal science department now and we caught up and she's like I always knew you'd be a teacher <laughs> I mean That's I think so half cool. the
3: time my parents still think I'm a vet I don't <laughs> 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 but yeah I think that not all advisors are on student sides, but mm-hmm. when they are, that's the best. Or yeah, maybe yeah. some of them want to be, but they don't know how to do that right. Yeah. there's. It's weird, and I'm, I guess I feel like I'm breaking like a a, a very secret rule here, but <laughs> when we go to school to learn our disciplines, we learn our disciplines. At no point do we learn how to teach, how to mentor. That's true. We figure that out on our own. That takes some trial and error, and sometimes that error means... Students need to give that feedback to say like, hey, I know you're trying to be on my side, but what I really need is X, Y, or Z.
1: Do you go and sit in on other people's, like you said, you know, you taught Sheila at one point, or but she's never. <laughs> no one <remembers, laughs> but she doesn't remember seeing you teach. That might have like subconsciously seeped in a little bit, or do you ask questions, or do you read books on specifically on teaching?
4: I, for me, it's I think I teach a lot like the professors that I really liked. Mm-hmm. Um, there's elements of one of my favorite professors from UVM, Pat Erickson, who she was just amazing. She just would incorporate stories about her life and the applications of the things that she learned and she was a real person it wasn't like we're just following a textbook and she did really cool stuff with us and our advisor from SDSU Becca Lewison I feel like I do a lot of Becca-ish things when I'm teaching.
3: Yeah, she actually started dressing like her. <laughs> herself,
1: <but. laughs> She's my <girl>. hero. <laughs> Can you explicitly say to kids like I'm on your side? Or yeah. Things oh, like yeah, that. Totally. oh yeah yeah. Like, let them know.
4: Like, yeah, yeah. I have not. students cry to me to more regularly than I would like them to cry.
3: I mean, I think that like office hours should be a safe space and you should let students know like, I mean, if you have questions about my class, by all means, that's what I'm there for. But if you have questions about your career trajectory or anything else, like hopefully they realize I'm available. I actually try to send my students at the beginning of the semester an evite for office hours that says, I want you to come. Don't feel like you shouldn't. (laughs) Um, I don't know if that makes any difference or not. But yeah, I do think that if you show respect to your students, they will realize that you're on their side. Mm-hmm. Um, and not not every professor does that well, but I think the students can provide feedback, hopefully, and help professors get better.
4: Well, I can. So I had an experience this past spring um, with a student who I got an email from one of the counselors at our school the day of our final exam. And he said, I have this student in my office right now. Um, The student is having an issue with another professor and has been accused of plagiarism on a final paper. And we're trying to deal with it. She's very upset. And would you be willing to work with her on rescheduling the exam? I was like, she's one of my top students. There's no way. There's just no way. And so I spoke with her and went so far. I was like, send me the paper. And I sent, put it through the, the, there's all these software now where you can easily determine plagiarism. I put it through 2% matched anything. So 98% was original work. Yeah. And I was like, I will go to town for you. I mean, this is like, I will, I, I just feel like you have, there's professors that, just kind of go through the motions and then there's people that you're like I don't this is some other class you just took for fun you thought <laughs> and now I don't want you to have to go through this she was one of my top students in a biology majors class that's pretty rigorous rigorous and then helped her with this when she did come to take her makeup vinyl brought me a bouquet of roses which I was like this is so sweet I was so touched but she you know her point being like you went out of your way to help with this and I felt like well why, of course I would well you're one of my students I care about you mm-hmm. and I I would do that for any one of them.
1: I
3: think that's rare,
1: though. I mean... I know. I find, I've, I'm like,
4: I've learned that over the years, but I still... It wouldn't change. Well, it's a gradient,
3: know. right? So, like... I mean, it might be, yeah. you know, how, how far you're able to... I would not say willing to go to help your students. It's determined on what else is going on in your life. Like, yeah. you know, before I had my son... I would stay late if I had to to meet students and be like, look, I know you have a full day of classes. You can't make it to my office hours. What if I meet you at seven? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was fine, but now that I have a son at home, if I stay till seven, I don't see him for that day. Mm-hmm. So I can't do that anymore. And sometimes it breaks my heart to feel like, oh, I'm failing the students. But it just means that we have to communicate more. And I'll talk to them and be like, look, I can't stay till seven. Let's figure out a time that works for both of our schedules. And most of the time, you can figure it out, but...
4: Well, I mean, this I, that, everything I did, though, was just via email. I was, like, at home watching TV. I'm like, <laughs> if I can send a couple emails. That's easy <laughs> enough to do. And, but I think, you know, they're not used to having their professors kind of stick up for them. Like, that. there's yeah, such totally. there's such a disconnect, especially with the younger students. Teaching at community college, especially, because I've always taught an evening class. I'm actually going to be switching to daytime starting this summer and then in the fall. But um, I typically have... I would say like half 18, 19 year olds that are on, you know, a traditional student track. But then I have students that are in their 40s that are coming back for a second career or, you know, same age, a little bit younger than me that are, you know, second career choice. I really am passionate about this and I've decided to go back to school. Uh, But the younger student, they're not as uncomfortable about coming or intimidated to Mm -hmm. come up. The younger students for sure are because Mm -hmm. I think they just, oh, it's a college professor. (laughs) please.
3: (laughs) And it also depends on the class. Like if you're teaching a GE class that they might not be that interested or general education and I can't assume everyone knows what that means, right? Um, They might be less inclined because they don't care about the subject they're there because they have to be. Whereas if you're teaching something that's a major course where they really care about it, I feel like they're more likely to come in and be engaged and but again that's on the professor to try engage students that aren't necessarily yeah on that track
1: mm-hmm. can you feel the <clears throat> i mean it, it doesn't seem inevitable but it seems common that people burn out a little bit or they just start going through the motions you feel like where that sets in
4: i think it sets in about the last quarter of the semester every semester <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i uh I do I do think by the end of semesters I'm pretty burnout. out. I try to not go through the motions, but um, I'm hoping that is less so now that I'm not going to be at so many different schools. I right. think that I I think it's probably really very personality dependent on the professor because there are professors that I had that were, you know, in their 70s. My master's advisor who Tommy knows by name because I talked about him so much when I first started my PhD. I'm like, "Well, Mike Salmon is this." <laughs> and he's like, "Oh, Mike." But Mike was in his like late 60s, early 70s when he was my master's advisor and he was like the coolest and so engaged and loved he wasn't actively teaching at that point, but he would come to classes as sort of a student almost and nice. ask questions and get people talking and so but then you have other people that you're like, you should have retired
3: ten years ago. <laughs> this is not good for it this. Or something you should never have been teaching. Yeah,
4: that's true too. Because the especially with academic positions, depending on where they are, if they are like Davi was saying, at a research based school, they are obligated to teach a certain amount every Mm -hmm. year or two years whatever it is it rotates and some of them don't want to teach at all and that comes across i mean there were people in our department at sdsu that you could
3: tell who liked it and who hated it and it was very (laughs) obvious and most of the time the students attitudes mirror that yeah like if you're with a professor that really loves or a teacher i shouldn't say professor a teacher that really loves what they're doing and they're passionate, the mm-hmm. students get excited, they get engaged. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was teaching biostats this last semester, which can be a bit of a dense class in some what? ways. It's thrilling. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> totally <laughs> thrilling. Uh, and I had students that, you know, when you're teaching math-based classes, it can be intimidating sometimes. And so, mm-hmm. you know, part of what I would try to do is let people know that it's okay if you have math apprehension or phobia. Let's get through it together. And by the end, I had students that would come to a four-hour R programming, which is a type of statistical programming language, labs, and they were having the best time at the end of it because they were like, "Look how much we've learned. Mm-hmm. We may not be experts, but we've certainly improved." And they they seemed excited. They they didn't get burned out. That kept me from getting burned out. I actually did. I that just I'd have gone to one of your R workshops. Oh, it's so, I
4: haven't seen you teach there too. Um, it's I thrilling. It, it, so <laughs> thrilling. Um, I yeah. I think it's Davi saying with the general education classes there's certainly when you teach a biology majors course of any kind there is just a sort of line of enthusiasm they all come in with that they're like a bottom line like they all at least are excited about certain things in biology my I've always looked at the general education science classes as Like a personal challenge. I want to get these people that think they hate science involved. And so one of the classes that I taught, I've taught now for three semesters at Cal State San Marcos that I'm going to miss so much teaching because I I can't do it anymore now with my full time job, but um, was Called Life and the Environmental Sciences Around Us. <laughs> I did not title it, but when I started teaching it, uh, the chair of the department was sort of like, Here are the general student learning outcomes. Here's the description of the course. You can do whatever you want within this. So I didn't use a traditional textbook. I used a nonfiction book by um, a naturalist scientist named E.O. Wilson, who's. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ants. I love E.O. Wilson. He's one of my like folk heroes in science. He's actually speaking at the GIS conference and it was in just July in San Diego. It was his 80th birthday yeah. or 90th, 90th, right. I think. Um, no, oh, whatever. But I used, um, I used two different books of his and thought, you know, this is a way to get non-science people interested in science. They don't have a textbook. They just buy this book. We're going to read chapters as we go that go along with lecture. And now this, I just finished my third semester of this and their last paper assignment was talking about any two things, positive or negative, that they learned from using the book in class. And I was like really touched by some of these students because there were students in their essays that said they came into the class thinking climate change was a hoax and that there it was just made up science and there weren't really anything, there wasn't really anything to worry about. We read the E.O. Wilson book Half Earth, which I believe is his most recent. It came out in 2017. And the the point of it is to set aside half of the earth for conservation and management. And to have, I would say, 10 to 20 percent of these papers were students that came in not caring about the environment at all, not believing in climate change. And to have changed their perspective, that it's like the biggest reward I think you can have. As but a isn't teacher. it on an
1: overall larger scale? Sort of sad that they made it through high school with like not yeah, only another. I
4: unfortunately I think people are afraid to talk about climate change like it's a hot button issue. It's I mean, been so politicized the to the right. White
3: House, and it's one <laughs> of the
4: first things now. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the first things, though, that I state at the beginning of all of my classes is we are. This is a science course. We will talk about the facts related to climate change and environmental issues and this is not a politicized issue that you can personally feel however you'd like but within this classroom we're dealing with science and we're dealing with theories and facts and you know
1: well how much do you feel like a vested responsibility as educators to see the next generation coming through and you know a a million plastic water bottles sold every minute every day 500 billion per year and like that is so overwhelming. The projections that it, the, the amount of, and I don't know if it's fish or aquatic life across the but plastic weight, the mass of it will eventually weigh more than the, the creatures in the sea. Mm-hmm, right. That's outrageous. Yeah. How do you get them passionate about being on the front end of turning that around if it's even possible.
3: I mean, I think that's that's an interesting question because I don't see my job as controlling what they decide to do. Like, that's not what I do. Okay. My job is to teach them information and teach them how to think critically so that they make that decision. Obviously, I would like them to care about not wasting plastic and taking the correct measures to, you know, But that doesn't mean you have to have an agenda. Yeah, but I don't go in exactly. My agenda when I teach is to give them the information and to teach them the ability to think critically. And then they take that. And the fact of the matter is our generation has not done a great job of stopping these issues, right, or fixing them. So the next generation is hopefully going to have other ways of addressing them. I don't know what those are going to be. But if I can teach people to think critically on their own, how to assess whether information is, good information versus coming out of nowhere, then I think I've done my job. And then I just kind of cross my fingers and hope, I guess.
1: <laughs> do you get bright-eyed kids that come in and are like, hey, I I did a, I won the science fair because I did this. I want to be a part of the solution. Yeah. And how do you nurture that? How do you keep them from just getting real bummed out?
4: Well, so again, that same class with non-science majors that are still bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and care. I feel like that generation that's, you know, I guess... A, Aren't they millennial no they're not millennials. They're like They're Z or whatever. Zin- That's the next one? Yeah. I think so. Okay. I forget what they're co- what they call them though. But um, a lot of them are really passionate about issues in general, I think. And uh, you know, to get feedback that you have helped change their perspective or reinforce with actual facts that they can use one of my favorite things that I get almost every semester in that class specifically is that aunt or uncle I always see at family functions (laughs) that's like no 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 this isn't real and there's no proof of this I finally have like the ammunition to go and say yes here are some facts I can give you and like Davi was saying it's not I think when you deal with friends or family, too, on a personal level, because we both, I'm sure, have uh, that don't agree with Well, we have family. I don't know about friends. (laughs) Good one. um, When you have those people, you can approach it as like, no, you're wrong. I'm a scientist. I know better. Or you can just say, here are some things that I know from what I do, and this is how I understand it to contribute to X, Y, and Z. And then... I think that approach of really just providing the tools in someone's toolbox to understand something and let them get there on their own, that's, yeah, we we facilitate
3: knowledge, I think. And I think, I mean, being supportive of passion is important, too. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, like, I recognize that if we're going to stop some of the issues that we're facing, environmental issues, it it takes major systemic change, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. If my university stops selling, or handing out plastic bags... With each sale, that's not going to end the plastic crisis. It takes more than that. Mm-hmm. And some of these issues might even kind of distract us from the bigger solutions. And there's a lot of science and thought that have gone into that. But if I have a student that comes up to me and says, I care about not wanting plastic in, in the oceans. Mm-hmm. and I want st- to fix this problem. And they want to start a campaign to get the university to hand out fewer plastic bags. I am going to support them oh, yeah. 100% and say, we can make this difference let's do it, let's kind of stoke your passion, and along the way we'll learn about some of the bigger things that we maybe can do as a society and what we can do to try to push those forward also.
4: Yeah, and I think, you know, if. One of the things I always get in my feedback from my student evaluations is that I'm very enthusiastic. <laughs> and so I that obviously is coming across to my students and I do think that does become contagious because that was when I as an undergrad and in grad school the professors I had that you could tell how much they cared about what they were doing and the things that they're doing in their own life to try to contribute to conservation in Issues or use their own life as an example. I'm pretty self-deprecating too when I teach, which I think lowers you a little bit to make you more approachable. (laughs) But um, yeah, I I love when students are enthusiastic and they get excited about things and they want to be able to do more. And I'm always posting like internship opportunities and, you know, I'll write letters of recommendation. Let me know what you're interested in. I can help you. You have to utilize
3: your resources as a student. I mean, bringing in current events and 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 primary scientific literature into the classroom does it, too. It's like we're not just a bunch of ivory tower people sitting reading you textbooks. Like, here's how this applies to your real life. Let's talk about that. And you can give me your opinion and we can talk about things that you care about. Mm -hmm. Or conversely is, hey, we're learning about this thing. If you find something that you think is interesting, bring it in the class and I will bring it up with the rest of the students and we can have a discussion. I feel like that goes a long way. Also.
4: I do. I I do do that. I do current events. (laughs) It feels like I remember being in elementary school and you had like, it's current event day and everybody had to bring something in. But I did, I feel like Becca did that. I got that from her. I always think, but our advisor from our doctoral program. But um, I, my, I always offer an honors option for my bio majors and they are required to do two current events throughout the semester. And then every class, I just start with that. Has anybody seen anything in the news that's relevant to what we're talking about? And I let the discussion go as long as it's gonna go. We can always do the lecture stuff later. If they're excited about something, let's talk about it. And I think this semester there were two that really got people going. One was talking about um, the new, like all the new vegan options for meats like the yeah. pretend meats like beyond meat is the one like carl's jr now has their burgers and yeah um there the were possible
1: burgers yeah, and all yeah
4: stuff. yeah and so talking about that from a biological standpoint of you know we have a digestive tract that is omnivorous but for the planet it is arguably healthier to have a vegetarian or vegan diet at least what did they say once a week if you can avoid meat it's good um that was a big one got people going and then the other one i was so so surprised that got people talking was um, the the folks that mapped the woolly mammoth genome Mm -hmm. and now it's fully mapped and now they're saying that they are really within reach of cloning a woolly mammoth and someone brought that up brought it was there was an article that was published within the past few months and people talking both sides of like yeah we should do it because why wouldn't we do it we have the technology and then everyone else sort of that fell on the other side saying but why do it just cuz we can this wooly mammoth is not a, there's no no environment that it <laughs> right. can fit I've seen it ice in.
3: age and they do not like being by themselves right. it makes them grumpy so or uh, warm well, and then yeah. the,
4: the other thing story related to that was the uh, rhino was a southern white rhino Sudan The, the northern, northern, white, northern rhino. white rhino was the last male of his kind that went extinct a year or two ago and there's I believe only two females, two females left females. and they saved his sperm and now they're making this whole thing oh we can make more of them and I as a conservation ecologist I think why are we putting all of this money there? going to be too genetically related this to me feels like a band-aid on a bullet hole like we mm. did this we let the population get to down to two females yeah i think that money could be used a lot more effectively for ecosystem-wide management
1: well that touches on like so that's in a sense your opinion like, mm. you get to yeah. these gray area things where like you have all of these Outlets or whatever you yeah. I mean, call them, where they can go on YouTube and watch some Talking Heads or listen to this or listen to something else. When your classroom, you'd like to think it's distilled down to like, here are just facts. Go out yeah. and do what you will with them, oh. and we're sending every class that graduates out into the world that way. But maybe they lose some of those and forget right. some of those and get more attached, like, I'm going to put this bumper sticker on my car because oh, right. these Definitely. are the facts. Well, I,
3: I want think. my students to leave my classroom and know that there are no science facts. There are scientific <laughs> yeah. theories. Yeah. There are things that are supported. But all of those can be overturned with future research, and that's yeah. important to recognize. And mm-hmm. continue to think critically about all of this material is very important. You can't just say, I know this now. Yeah. We're stuck to it. We have yeah. dogma. Let's go. Because, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, scientists do it all the time. There's tons of dogma that there's now evidence to, you know, that no longer supports that, but people are set in their ways, even though they're trained to kind of think critically. And sure. this is my first thing that I like to do in any class that I teach is point out that science is not a set of information. It is a method of uh, a process of mm-hmm. discovery. And it's ongoing, it's not done, it's never done. So what we need to be teaching is how do you conduct science what are we actually trying to do as scientists? This notion of uncertainty, which I'm not going to get on my soapbox now because <laughs> it could take forever. But you know what we do as scientists is not discover the facts. We kind of try gauge the width of uncertainty around something that we're studying and kind of understand that un- or characterize that uncertainty. And that can make some people go, oh, well, then you're a bad scientist. If you don't know the answer, you're doing it wrong. And you're like, no, no, I chiseled a little piece out to know that that direction was wrong but there's an infinite number of other directions that we can possibly go and science again it's alive it's going we need to continue doing science as a method it would be this is kind of a silly parable i like to compare it to right is imagine if you were going to a cooking class and you're like i really love mediterranean cuisine let's go to this mediterranean cooking class and you walked in and the instructor was like here's a tzatziki, you know, here's a falafel, here's a shawarma, any questions? And you'd be like, yeah, yeah, I don't I don't know how to make any of those yet. And I feel like science is the same way. Like, you walk into a biology class and they're like, you know, females have larger gametes and males have smaller gametes. And you learn this laundry list <laughs> that of- That is true. It is, well, <laughs> we can talk about that later too. But you learn this laundry list of, you know, quote, unquote, facts. And you're like, no, yeah. no, science isn't fact. Science is a process. Let's go into the classroom learn the process, then we can, when we read these things later, evaluate whether or not we think that they're supported or not supported.
4: Yeah, I, I agree with all of that, totally. I, but going back to the opinion, the, like, impressing your opinions, my students ask for it a lot, yeah. especially when we're talking about current events. Totally. What is your opinion? And so that's, yeah. I usually do preface it as, mm. as a conservation ecologist, this is my view. There mm-hmm. are other conservation ecologists that would take a different view. We are conserving the species by doing something. So I give them my opinion, and then totally. I usually give them the counter opinion and say, this This is also perfectly valid. But yeah, getting into one of the things I know I felt was failed in my gen bio class when I was an undergrad was the big picture stuff. It was so much like Davi was saying of, you know, I think we agree on doing it the wrong way of memorize this through this and these are the things you need to know for the test and they're always so especially bio majors they're so worried about maintaining their GPA because most of them are going on to graduate programs or medical school or whatever it is but I focus my class and I start that off day one of we are going to talk about big picture stuff and use examples and details of evidence that we have to support those big picture theories. And I think one of the biggest things and it's like the simplest thing is to I remind, my students probably think it's like beating a dead horse, but is that animals, plants, bacteria, everything, the goal of everything is to survive and reproduce. And that's it. And we can talk about every other aspect of living organisms in the context of how they get to that ultimate those two ultimate goals and so we can talk about you know why are certain gametes larger than others or why do some animals reproduce and not take care of their young and others do and those are all examples of support of that big evolutionary goal of survival and reproduction and i think that that's like you said, it's, science is plastic. Every year, I feel like I'm changing things the way I teach them a little bit because of new things that have come out in the literature. Don't you
1: I'm, yeah, definitely. I brought up some uh, <clears throat> I have some some larger thoughts I think to expand on that with. but I was do you guys have more time to chat? I mean, you still have yeah. a little beer left? yeah <laughs> want to take a little break and then sure, continue. okay. <laughs> yeah. so come on back for uh, part two next week. We get further into the uh, Hoppy Pride Pilsner, and I believe I I think when this comes out is the tail end of Pride Month. But hopefully, it was happy and uh, a good one for you. And if you haven't tried that beer, give it a try. And uh, yeah, as I mentioned at the beginning, if you you are a Patreon member, bonus Dan chat is uh, is in there, and there's also bonus of uh, Fair Alibay. And there's there's not always like every week, even, or even every month, there's not always bonus stuff. Sometimes there'll be multiple bonus things per week or per month. You just never know. But anyway, it does uh, help the show tremendously. The show is made possible from contributions by listeners just like you. There are very rare. There's never been a legitimate ad on this show. Every now and again, I'll talk about something that I genuinely like. But otherwise, this is the only sales pitch you got to listen to. Try to keep it as short as possible. Uh, and come check out the Junk Show. I'd like to mention that it's always the second Sunday of every month. And again, those live shows, I'll be doing stand-up in uh, a bunch of different places. So check out davidhunsberger.com for that. If you have guest ideas or beer suggestions or topics or experts or some sort of complaint, I don't know, you can tweet at uh, space underscore cave. I don't know how many people are really doing that these days. Uh, but you can go to the... Uh, the, the you can go to da-da-da thespacecave.com and email pings at the spacecave and that'll get you uh through through the phone lines and I'll I'll hear what you're suggesting beer guests topics whatever that might be music if you're in a band if you're just making music in your spare time and you think it's decent or fits the tone of this show send it my way I'll I'll play it upwards of I don't know double digits of people will hear it and and spread the word about your music And then you'll you'll just take off and it'll be great Or if you're not ambitious in, uh, in that regard That you just like making it Then you'll share something nice With us just in our secret little community here Gathered in our cave in the recesses of deep space So you really can't lose Alright, I believe that's it I'm sure I'm forgetting something But it'll just have to wait This song is called A Kiss Goodbye It's by Taishi. I hope you enjoy it Thanks for stopping by the Space Cave.